This morning we have the privilege of launching into a new series, and we're going to be in the New Testament now in the book of Philippians. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there as I begin. Lord willing, this, will, this series will take us in through the, the end of uh, the spring right up to Easter. So we'll finish here in the next month and a half, two months. You know, we're already halfway through January. It just As you get older, it just kind of flies by. Kids don't think that, but us old people do. Philippians 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11, and uh, Partners in Joy is the title of this message. How much, how much of your life right now is driven by the desire for joy? Probably all of it, if you actually think through it. We need joy like we need air to breathe. But how do we get joy? That, that's something that naturally confounds us. Joy is real, and yet joy seems elusive. Just when we think we've cornered joy, about to grasp it tightly, it eludes us. Just when, when joy has come, it, it seems it, it, it fades away like a breath on a cold morning. And the pursuit of joy leads so many down really a path of despair. We pursue joy in our family, in our kids, and, but then we kill ourselves over worrying about them. We pursue joy in materialism, but then it devastates our bank account. We can pursue joy in our relationships and our marriages, but then we're crushed when the spouses that we have don't meet the expectations that we've set, and we realize suddenly that they're not perfect, and they sin. We can pursue joy in school or work, but then we eventually leave us empty because we won't really measure up. We even see that the quest for joy is built really in the fabric of our country, right? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, joy. And yet many have the anthem that I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Dissatisfaction isn't new. According to ancient historian Plutarch, Alexander the Great, wept in his tent saying, there are no more worlds for me to conquer. We can see this even in modern sports today. Playoffs started, sorry, Seahawks, at least you made it. Tom Brady is this year pursuing his eighth Super Bowl. I hear that's important. Along the way, it's at the expense of his marriage. The joy that comes from winning the Super Bowl is fleeting, again, from what I hear. But the joy from a healthy commitment in a relationship that can last a lifetime, and yet here he is still playing. Can joy be found, or is it some elaborate hoax to fool us? Can we really find all satisfying joy in our life? What if we've been looking for joy in all the wrong places these past few months or even years or decades? What if joy is elusive after all, but is only found, really, when we come to the end of ourselves and throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus? Do we think that we need something other than Jesus to find real joy in this life? Better behaved kids? a better job, a different address, more vacation time. See, in America, we often fall for the lie that the answer is is always bigger and better. 
bigger house, better car, bigger church, better clothes. But I believe what we truly need is a bigger and better view of God. You can have all those things, but friends, you will not really have joy, lasting joy. If you have everything but Jesus, you will always be longing for more. If you have nothing but Jesus, you will have everything you need and have joy. And so that leads us to our, stu- our study this morning in the book of Philippians. Philippians is a, a, a book, a letter of joy. Paul isn't writing to this church to correct a major heresy or even deep wickedness or morality, but he's writing to commend them, to, to encourage them to keep going in their walk with the Lord. And Paul writes this letter from prison, which highlights the significance of joy, considering what he's facing. And he writes with such confidence in our Lord to a church that is secure in God's hands and yet faces persecution from the outside. And Paul's purpose for writing was to encourage his Christian brothers and sisters to stand firm, united in the gospel of Jesus Christ together, and to live out their beliefs of who Christ is and what he's done for them, and to be confident in God. And so here's the main idea of this morning's sermon, okay? Here's the main thrust. If you write anything else down, write this down. Paul's joyful confidence in God comes through humble service, gospel partnership, and godly prayer. Paul's joyful confidence in God comes through humble service, gospel par- partnership, and godly prayer. And so there's three points that we'll cover through here. Joyful servants, joyful partnership, joyful prayer. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you all are partakers with me by grace, of grace, excuse me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen? Let me give you a few background points here before we dive in about this church. This church is in the city of Philippi, and it was founded in the middle of the 4th century before Christ and named after Philip II of Macedonia, who was the father of of the famous Alexander the Great. It was later conquered by the Romans in the mid-2nd century before Christ in 42 BC, and it then became a Roman colony, as, as Luke tells us in Acts 16. And in many respects, it became quite a miniature Rome, it was ruled by Roman law, reflected Roman lifestyle, and, and it had the same politics and, and socially, and even the architecture was, was that of Rome. And God saw fit to plant a church there through the ministry of Paul. And so perched on the edge of the southern Greece was Philippi, the, the first city to hear the Christian message in Europe. 
Now, 10 years after Paul established the church at Philippi, he, he writes this letter to, the, to his partners in the gospel. And he's going to thank them for their generosity, as we'll see in chapter 4, Lord willing. But before we get to there, he updates them how he's doing and, and where he is. And he explains that he had to send back Epaphroditus back to them soon. And he appeals to them to unite around the gospel that saved them. And he warns them of false teaching and urges them to persevere with joy in Jesus Christ even in the midst of suffering. But he begins by encouraging them here in these first 11 verses to keep going in their pursuit of joyful confidence in God. And in those three points, through humble service, gospel partnership, and godly prayer. So let's look at the first point, joyful servants. Right off the bat, we find out who's the writer of this. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. You know, it was common in those days to begin a message with who's writing at the very beginning. Here in America, we usually wait to the end. Um, but Paul says right off the bat, who's, who's writing? And Paul states, this is interesting, you might not have caught this, but unlike his other epistles, he, he doesn't say that he's an apostle. He does that in Romans and 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians. No, he, he says Paul and Timothy, which also kind of gave some affirmation to Timothy in his ministry, but they are servants, slaves of Christ Jesus. Doulos is the Greek word here, translated in the ESV as servants, but most direct translation is as slave or bond servant or bond slave. And Paul and Timothy are living proof for the believers in Philippi that those whom Jesus saves, he enslaves for his service in the kingdom. And Paul wants them to see how joyful it is to be slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, the idea that whom Jesus saves, he enslaves, might seem harsh and very uninviting. Chasing away our autonomy and causing us to be subject to someone else doesn't seem to be very appealing, right? You don't really put that on a, on a poster. Come be slaves. But we need to realize, friends, that everybody is somebody's slave. Even, even in his famous poem, Invictus, William Ernest Henley says, I am the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul, and he's lying. That's not true. It isn't true. We're all slaves to some, somebody. If we're not slaves to Christ, we're, we serve a master that enslaves us for their benefit. The master you serve might be success or money or power. The master you serve might be relationships or reputation or even relaxation. You might be enslaved by others' opinions or, or rejection or ridicule. But the fact of the matter is, everybody is somebody's slave. And the truth of the Bible is that every other master will exploit you and will disappoint you in the end, except for Jesus. Every other master in this world will use you and discard you, except for Jesus. Every other master in this world will abuse you for their own gain to get out of you what they want, except for Jesus. One commentator said, one who is slave of Christ is truly free from sin. If he is truly a slave of Christ, he is not a slave of any other realm. So when we come to the end of ourselves, when we realize that there is really nothing more liberating than to be a slave of the King, King Jesus, we are free from sin and we're called saints. Did you catch that there at the beginning? Paul's writing, he says, to the saints 
in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. It would be right for me to call you St. Chris back there. He is in Christ. St. What's your name again? Jason. I knew it, actually. Paul is deliberate in that term. A saint here is, in, is, is, is a noun, and, then, and it's the same word as holy. It's another adjective there. There are two ways of talking about the same thing. These two words describe the purity of those who have been sanctified in the blood of Jesus, set apart for the service for God. And how are we made saints? How are we made saints? It's, it's because we're in Jesus Christ. We read those two words that are, that are stated there and throughout Paul's letters but we need to really pause and just think of the, the, the huge reality of what those words mean, that we're in Christ. Paul uses that phrase 20 times in this short letter. And he's using it to describe the Christian's reason for rejoicing and the source of encouragement. The very center, though, being in Christ is Paul's way of communicating that all who trust in Jesus Christ are bound tight to him so that his obedience and sacrifice and resurrection life becomes theirs. His death on the cross becomes their death under sin's condemnation, their death to sin's dominion. His resurrection declares the right standing before God, the judge, and brings new life to them in God. Being in Christ is what it means to be a Christian. A saint is a Christian who has had their old life cut off and now distances themselves and is set apart from their former lifestyle. They're new. They belong to Christ. And in fact, it is only through belonging to Jesus Christ that we become saints. Just think for a moment of the change that would happen in your life and in the life of our church family and for patience with others and for endurance in this life if we would remind ourselves that as a Christian, we're slaves to Jesus Christ, and we are saints. How would that truth impact your personal life, your family life? How would that truth impact your church priorities? Married people, how would the truth that you're slave to Jesus Christ to obey and follow Him, how would that impact your marriage if you both understood that and both lived that out? How would it impact our church? Would we use our time differently if we're reminding ourselves that we're slaves to Him, that we're owned by Jesus Christ? How would this belief and understanding that we are saints in Christ, slaves to Him, how would that affect your wallet? How would it affect your spending? Realizing that all the funds you have are a gift from God. The energy that you have to work a job, the brain that God gave you all is a gift from God. And we are slaves to Him. How would that affect us? See, this terminology is really important. It has far-reaching consequences to us in our personal lives, in our families, and as a church corporately. But I wonder if you're here this morning, you're new, and, and friend, you're, you're worshiping with us, and, and you're not a regular, and, and, and I want to say you're always welcome. We're always here at 1030 on Sundays, and you're welcome to come every week. 
But does it sound strange to you that the Bible calls Christians slaves to Jesus Christ? Do you realize that you are right now a slave to somebody else? See, no one on earth is their own master. You have may have convinced yourself of that, but it's not true. We're all slaves to someone. Friend, have you ever experienced the liberation of surrendering to the master, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who became a slave to free you from yourself and to free you from the masters that drive you into the ground? Friend, today is an excellent day to turn from your slavery here on earth that will never truly satisfy and to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And he will bring complete satisfaction. I encourage you to to come find me or another Christian even in your row, one that has their Bible open and pay attention and ask them, how do I become a Christian? And and I'm sure they would love to show you from the Bible. I'm I'm sure I would love to, to spend my time this afternoon to show you how you can have a relationship and how that, that, that relationship of master to this world and those things can be transferred to the right and proper master, Jesus Christ. Christians this morning, have you forgotten this week that you're a slave to Jesus Christ and in service to him in all of life? Friends, we don't have to serve Jesus. We get to serve Jesus. There's a difference. We can remind ourselves that Christ paid all of our debt, but we still live sometimes like the rent is due. Still like we have to do something to earn it. Friends, there's nothing more that you can do to save yourself. Christ did it all. So don't spend your time guilting yourself into service for God. That won't do any good. Look to Christ. Remember your salvation and with his help, live that out. I mean, Paul understood this better than anyone. He, he, he didn't say, look at my accomplishments. He didn't say, look at your family. He had it right to say that more than anyone. He'll get to that in the book. He says, look to Jesus and then rejoice. And as we look to him and serve him, we will find joy. So that's first, joyful service. Second, joyful partnership. I don't know about you, but as I read through this book, and by the way, I would encourage you, it would take about 20 minutes to read through the book. So even do that a few times this week if you have time or listen to it. Um, But when you read through it, it feels like we're sneaking up on a conversation, like we're eavesdropping. You know, when we get to these letters of Paul to the churches, like we almost feel like, oh, that's a little personal. I don't know if I should be hearing this. But really, friends, this letter is written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it's for believers. It's for us. It's really written in some ways for us at EBC to, to consider what God has for us through the, the pen of Paul. It's for us to consider how much he loves us and keeps us, encourages us to love others and to partner with others in ministry. And so we will grow the most as we are in this study in the book of Philippians if we ask this question, how are we doing? To ask that, how are we doing? As we reflect of what he says to the the church in Philippi, to ask ourselves individually and corporately as a church, how are we doing with this? Well, as I said before, 
You've probably realized this. If not, Paul is writing this letter from prison. He's not writing this letter from a, a place of comfort. He isn't sitting next to a nice warm fireplace and sipping on a mocha and comfy clothes and legs propped up. He's chained to a guard. His every move, every action is watched. He can have visitors, he can write letters, but he can't leave. And so he awaits at this point the emperor's decision on his appeal, all the while chained to another man. It had been years, in fact, since he had freedom to proclaim the good news in synagogues and marketplaces. And if anyone had the right to vent dissatisfaction and anger and frustration over the circumstances of their life, it was Paul. And yet Paul is joyful. The most joyful man in Rome at that time was in jail, and his name was Paul. And how could it be? I mean, ancient Rome was the, well, the wonderland filled with games and sexual pleasures and lavish parties and theater and pleasures as far as the eye can see. But here, Paul really has joy, a thousand times better than anyone else in the world. And he reminds us that ultimate joy isn't derived from comfortable circumstances, but from living a vibrant communion with Christ and in connection with His church. Joy came not only from service for Christ, but in partnership with Christians for the glory of God. Now, partnership, and he mentions this is really the theme for, for the whole series is, is partnership. Partnership is an interesting word. The term partnership is a Greek word, uh, a fellowship, koina. And we get the word for sharing. And, and Paul is communicating in verse 5, the Philippians are, they would give a practical support of Paul's efforts to proclaim the gospel and to, to meet the needs of other believers. And Paul praises this church. He says there, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you. Even though the church wasn't perfect, and we will see more evidence of that as we walk through the book, Paul was very thankful for these partners in ministry. And that the church here, the, all of them were, were full of committed and covenanted members together. He says that a few times, that word all. He's writing to the group. He says in verse 4 and 7 and 8, all of you. And he's talking to the membership of this church. And when, when you get to chapter 4, there are a few members who need correction, but, but overall, Paul has this gratefulness, this thankfulness for the church as a whole. And so the conflict that he would confront wouldn't crush the gratitude that he expresses for the church as a whole. And so let me ask, are you thankful for all of the church members here? Or are there a few caveats to that? 98% of the membership I love, but 2% I tolerate. Is that true for you? I mean, even though you might have some differences of opinions, or maybe you've had some serious strife with others, friends, are you thankful for them? If you're a critical person towards other people, always looking what is wrong or not liking how they act, then you will ultimately won't be a very thankful person, and you won't be thankful for them. I have shocking news. None of us here are perfect. None. And so we shouldn't look for perfection in others before we're thankful for them. We should instead be on a search for evidences of grace in the lives of others and be thankful for them 
and share our thankfulness for them. We should be thankful for others, seeing God's work in their lives in small ways and praise God for what He's doing. We should remind ourselves that that sanctification is a slow process and every one of us grows at different paces. And if we're not developing a thankful heart for the church membership here, friends, joy will elude us. We cannot allow conflict to crush our joy. Now, don't come away from this discussion thinking that we, we shouldn't then deal with conflict. To have joy means we avoid all conflict. That's not what Paul does. Paul certainly does deal with conflict in this letter. But he refuses to allow dysfunction and disobedience and fighting to take away his joy and thankfulness for other believers. And he's teaching us to rejoice in the Lord even when there is conflict. And he will teach us how we're to go about dealing with conflict and still have thankfulness for each other, for the church. It's actually possible to live in both arenas at one time, to be thankful for another member and still deal with conflict that you may have or a disagreement. I sometimes feel that we we separate the two. Well, I've got this issue, so I'm not going to be thankful for him because now I'm busier than I wanted to be. I have to focus on that, but that's not true. That's not what Paul does here. And this teaching stretches us. And we better have a a well of joy deeper than the, the well that the world can provide. And only the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross can give us the joy to be thankful for people even when we struggle to love them. One sure sign that we're growing in grace is that we're becoming a more thankful person for others, especially those that that might rub us the wrong way. I think many of the problems that we face as a church family, corporately, would disappear if simply we would pray for one another more regularly and be thankful for one another. So here's the challenge for 2023. Be thankful for one another. And let's see if the problems that maybe you have faced with relationships here in the church or even in your family would, would somehow fade away and you would recognize you're walking with other humans on their path of sanctification and that you would show love and care for them. And I, I, I pray that we would not just be thankful for one another as we pray for them, but that we would look at others and and members as partners, really, in the gospel. Covenanted members together. See, they're not just members, they're, they're partners. Partnership involves energetic, wholehearted, active, and consistent engagement in the same path, in the same project. And Paul, what we will see here, is thankful for the church's partnership in what? in the gospel. Twice in this section, Paul uses that word partnership or fellowship. It's the bond that ties people together who have something important in common, who share a privilege and a treasure. And and what is the thing, again, that that he shares with Christians? It's the gospel. It's what we share in common with, with one another in the church here. 
Because Paul and his friends at the church share in the good news, relying not on themselves but on Jesus, that's why Paul loves them extensively and intensively. See, the gospel came into his life and destroyed that worldly trajectory that he was on. The gospel destroyed his sinful world and set him on a course to follow God and to have peace and true joy. And it was the grace of God that confronted Paul that day on the road to Damascus as he was going to to put Christians in jail. And God changed the trajectory of his life and set him on a new mission. See, if we're partners in the gospel, it's because we're partners in his grace. Because of the invincible spirit of Christ that has destroyed our trajectory as well, in spite of ourselves, and pulled us out of a pit of self-centered, self-reliance, and made us face the guilt and helplessness by recognizing and realizing that Christ is the one that saved us. And so the grace of God should invoke in us a praise and a gratitude in our lives, and it should develop and strengthen these bonds of partnership with one another in the church membership, because we've covenanted together, not just for fun, not just for having chili together, which that's fantastic. We've partnered together for the furtherance of the gospel. You know, that's why we come to to remember that, to soak in it and to go out and spread it. That's why we've partnered. See, the gospel should ignite us with this desire as Christians to want to share the good news with those we come in contact with. Friends, it is truly amazing how little you will complain about little things in the church when you're sharing the gospel with others. In fact, I would dare say those that are most vocal about what they don't like about this or that are probably least driven to go share the gospel with lost souls to bring him in here. See, when our heart is so dedicated to all, to, to right all the wrongs that we feel have been done to us or, or to the group, we have little time or desire to give ourselves to others. When fellow church members' offenses loom so large in our minds, it's because we have lost sight of the marvel that all of us who belong to Jesus Christ are partners in the gospel and that we're fellow participants in his grace. We forget the gospel. It's like we have amnesia. Actually, I think we, we push it out of our minds. And we, and, we, and we forget who we were before God saved us. And we forget God's work in each other's life, that it's not over yet. And when that happens, when we are so focused on those things, we, we, we forget to share the gospel with anyone. We push it out of our minds, and there is a dying world out there that needs to understand and hear the hope that we have. Friends, God has placed you in this church family And if you're a member, you have covenanted together for your benefit and for the benefit of others. And what drives that is a remembrance of the gospel. 
of that, that partnership we have in Jesus Christ. And it's for your sanctification that we continue to meet together and that the work is not done. You should look there in verse 6 because Paul is going to be emphatic about how the work is still not done. It says in verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is a fantastic verse for us to know and understand and memorize. Paul begins by saying that he is sure of this. Your Bible might say confident. That means it's, it's to be strongly persuaded. Paul is secure, he's sure, he's confident. And what is he confident of? That, that he, he began this work. And who is he here? He refers to God the Father. And what did he do? He is the one who began this good work. You need to note that it was God that began this work. And not God and the Philippians as if it was some cooperative work that they did together. No, Paul says in Ephesians they were dead in their trespasses and their sins. It was God, and it was God alone who began this work. And what is this work? The work is salvation, the new birth. It was regeneration. And God is the only one who saves. If you were to turn to Acts 16, 14, and I would encourage you to do that. It kind of gives you some backstory of Philippians, and we'll get into that, Lord willing, in the future weeks. But if you go back to Acts 16, 14, they learn of Lydia, the first convert in Philippi. And this is what the text says. I'll just read it. The text says of her conversion. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Paul preached the gospel to them. And it says, the Lord opened her heart and she was converted. And then she was baptized, as the, as the, the passage will say, which is the next natural step, friends, for those that turn in repentance to follow Jesus Christ. But God began the work in Lydia. It was all his doing. Paul could only bring the gospel to the ear, but it was God who takes the word from the ear to the heart and regenerates man. God must do the work of regeneration, of salvation. The preacher doesn't. I am only a tool in the hand of God. God began his good work in each one of his people it was his initiative. He started the work, and we don't get credit for it. And then Paul ends the verse by encouraging us by saying, God will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you see the word will there? That word emphasizes the certainty of this happening. It will happen. God will certainly perfect this work that he began. God will get it done. And not just complete it, but he will finish it perfectly. Completion. It's an intensive word there. It's an important word to see and understand. It's the same verb that was used by the gospel writers when Jesus cries out from the cross, it is finished. To bring all the way to completion the work of redemption on the cross. That's the word that Paul uses here. What God started, he brings to completion. He will finish it. See, friends, God is not like us. We always start things, and we don't finish them, right? Have you ever had an incomplete in school? You get an assignment, and it's given, and you didn't get it done. It's incomplete. Sometimes we have incompletes at home, right? Is there any amens from the men with the list from the wife, right? She hopes that progress will be happening, and it hasn't happened. How many of you started a diet two weeks ago? How's that going? 
right? You got that really smoking gym membership deal that they just suckered you in on the commercials. You still going? We have good intentions, right, to begin something. And then we struggle and stuff happens and then we're thrown off. God never has that problem. God never has an incomplete. God never says, you know, I I was working towards that end and I got distracted. God is not like us, friends. God always finishes what he starts. His work of regeneration rescued us from spiritual death. His justification rescues us from guilt and condemnation. His reconciliation and adoption rescues us from alienation and and spiritual loneliness. But he won't stop his work until it's finally completed. God guarantees it. And when God guarantees something, it's going to happen. Our almighty God who began a good work in you will take that project all the way through completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You can take it to the bank, friends. Neither you nor Satan or anyone else can stop his irresistible grace that will someday make you perfect, completely perfect in his sight. And so Paul is so full of joy and joyful confidence in this church because it's clear that that God began the good work in them and he sustains them and he will complete it. And so Paul rejoices. He's full of joy and you can hear it in his words. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. See, the, the church there in Philippi had a very special place in Paul's heart. What, what group of people would hold a close relationship to Paul than fellow Christians who were fellow partakers of grace. Friends, I don't know if you realize this, but we truly do have a family here. We gather as a family every week. I know you have blood family outside of this, okay? But this is family. And if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, You will not only worship here on Sundays together, you will worship together for all eternity. For my kids, there are spiritual aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas, because all those for us live thousands of miles away. This is family for us, and Paul saw this. Paul recognized this. Paul is trying to communicate this. This is family right here. No matter how great our blood family is, they don't have a higher valley than the blood-bought family of Jesus Christ. And this family will bring everlasting joy to you in the partnership for the gospel. This is why it's so important to be faithful to the gathered worship. This is why we make such a strong commendation for a covenanted church membership. This is why we talk about this so much. Because this is not a social club where you just attend when you feel like it or when your schedule allows. This gathered church here was purchased by Jesus Christ's blood. And we should make every effort to be committed to this church family in word, in prayer, and in giving and worship. 
So partnership together involves this energetic, wholehearted, active, and consistent engagement in which that we're partnered with and we're partnered in the gospel. And so if you're here and you're still not partnered with us, can I encourage you to do so? If you have lots of questions, I would love to sit down and answer lots of questions or try my best. But friends, you're missing out, essentially. You're missing out on what it means to be part of this family here gathered at Edgewood Bible Church. So I want to encourage you to be engaged in the church life here. So we've seen joyful servant and service and joyful partnership. Last is joyful prayer. Paul's joyful prayer for the church. Paul, Paul's affection and love for this church leads him to pray for them. And, and this is what you do when you love people, right? You, you pray for them. So let's look at that prayer more closely again. Verse 8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I'm curious, friends, if what, what, what would you ask if you could make any request to someone who had boundless financial resources? You know, a, a billionaire calls you up and brings you into their office and he says, ask anything that you want that money can buy. I'm curious what you would ask for. Or suppose that God would do anything for the people that you love most, for your spouse, for your kids, for your friends, significant other. What would you pray for for them? We see here what Paul prays for this church. See, Paul recognizes he has an audience with an infinitely rich sovereign of the universe, and he can ask him to give these people in Philippi, people that he loves dearly, anything. And what does he pray here? What, what would you pray for? See, Paul prays here for growth in love, a love that's informed by knowledge and discernment. He prays that their love would grow and abound, that it wouldn't be static. And Paul asks for a discerning wisdom with their love. He wants their love to abound in knowledge so that they would be able to discern what is best, to know what to love. I think sometimes we don't think of love and wisdom and that they go together. But Paul knows that wise love allows us to live wise lives, and foolish love then brings about foolish lives. And here, specifically, he prays that they would have wise love, discerning love, and that their love would be marked with purity, blamelessness, righteousness, until Jesus Christ returns. I want you to see how beautiful this prayer is. See, in our world, love, love, love is seen more rooted in tolerance and, and feelings than with truth and righteousness. Many have come under the understanding that to live in this way, that if, if it feels right, then it's okay. But love has always been tied to truth. Furthermore, God's love for us moved him to give his priceless gift, his only son. That gift was informed by wisdom, right? See, God knew what we needed, although we couldn't know that. 
And so God took the necessary steps that we couldn't. Christ gave his, blood, his life, and he was bloodied by human cruelty, abandoned by the Father in a travesty of justice. And the cross of Christ tells the truth about us, the truth that we prefer not to hear. But God's wise love knew no other remedy could, could rescue us. So his love toward us abounded in divine knowledge and all discernment, and so Christ came to die for us. And, and we know that true love is rooted in the knowledge of God. And so, friend, if you don't know God, you can't love others appropriately. Christ-like love is clear-sighted and sober-minded. And so Paul praised this, that they would understand how to love and what to love. Right? Isn't that what we want parents for our kids? You know, to grow them in admonition, to know the Lord. It's to when they leave our house that they know what to love and how to live and who to love. Not just any. I mean, I got four daughters. I don't want to marry any schmuck. I don't know if I should use that word. Let me know later if that was. I want them to, to know and love someone that loves Jesus. Right? So this prayer makes perfect sense that they would love what God loves. And they would love to do what he says. Friends, have you, have you ever looked at Paul's prayers through the New Testament as models for your own prayers and for the church? If you've, if you've met for a, a membership interview, we talk about this at the very end, but we encourage you to take the membership directory, directory and to pray for the members of this church. You realize that? We, we do that. In fact, in elder meetings, we pray for a few pages every meeting. And it's, it's listed here. People have said, this is great. How do I get in there? I'm like, become a member. This is for covenanted members because we're responsible for one another. And so encouraging you to, to get this. It's in my Bible. Keep it here. So when I'm reading, I pull it out and I pray through the membership directory. And I pray that God would give our people understanding of who he is. The most frequent comment I receive, though, about this practice is always, I don't know some or even most of these people, so what should I pray? Friends, open up your Bible and pray what Paul prays. I guarantee Paul did not know every single member of the church of Philippi. He knew probably a lot, but he's praying here for the whole. So pull that out. Take the prayers of Paul in the New Testament and, and use those prayers to pray for one another. Those that you've covenanted with, you've committed with, partnered with. Do you love other members this way as Paul outlines in his prayer? Or is it when we go to God in prayer, we've set our sights so low that we merely ask for things that money can buy? I mean, why would we waste this amazing privilege of coming before the Lord of the universe and asking for things that we can buy at Amazon or Walmart? Simple earthly comforts that will eventually be destroyed. Why do we do this when, when God stands at the ready to give to those that we love a rich treasure that will bring them joy, a discerning love, to love what God loves.
See, Paul shows us how to pray. I'm asking God to give you a love that acts for others, a well-being love that knows what others' well-being really is because you see people as they really are and you speak God's truth to them and you care for them. Won't that bring more lasting fruit in the lives of people that we love? Won't that produce the joy that they've been seeking in their life? And he wants to grow in this love for himself and for the church until that final day. So he points them to Christ's return. This is the second time that Paul mentions the day of Christ. It refers to the day of Jesus' glorious return as Lord of heaven and earth when every knee will bow and, and heaven on earth under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His eyes, Paul's eyes are fixed on the future and he, he longs to maximize the praise and glory of Jesus to that day. He longs to praise that way. Hope in the final day kept Paul himself going. And he prays for them in that last phrase, to the glory and praise of God. You see in this what pushes Paul is not his own praise or even praise of the church, but it's the glory and praise of God. That's what motivates him to keep going in service, to keep going until Jesus comes back. See, true love loves truth. And Paul wanted them to understand that. When Jesus returns, not only will believers be pure and blameless, but we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Paul paints the familiar biblical picture that compares godly people to fruitful trees and vines. Just like Psalm 1 that Pastor Chris walked us through on January 1st, the Psalm 1 person who soaks their heart in God's word is a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And what is the fruit that is reaped here but the fruit of righteousness for those that sit under God's word and soak it in? Friends, soak it in. See, Paul's joyful confidence in God, as we see here, and, and Lord willing, as we walk through this book, comes through this, this partnership in the gospel humble service to, to God through gospel partnership with other believers and through godly prayer. So I pray that we would learn this and apply that to our life as well. Would you pray with me? Father, we know from your word that we can only find joy, our joy, our true joy in you. And so we pray that we will we will pursue that. We will spend time in your word looking to serve you and to show thankfulness for others and pursuing that, that life of prayer for, for not only our family and our relationships personally, but, but for the relationships corporately that we have. And we pray that you would increase our joy. Would you give us a joy that is unfading and unrelenting? Would you continue to show us that you are worth it all? as we submit ourselves to you, as we live for you, as we understand and remind ourselves that we are ultimately slaves to you and your work here, I pray that you would help us to understand what it looks like to serve you in all ways and that we bring honor and glory to you. I pray that you would fill us with joy, the joy of salvation, the joy of 
uh, relationships that we have here as a church family. And may we bring all honor and glory to you as we leave this place. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.